Welcome back to the Word on Fire show. I'm Brandon Vaught, the host and the content director. We're here for another one of our discussion episodes of the podcast with Bishop Robert Barron. Bishop Barron, good to see you. Hey, Brandon. Always a joy to see you, too. In this episode, we're going to be discussing Bishop Barron's new book. It's titled Renewing Our Hope, and today is the launch day. It just came out. It's an exciting book, which covers several topics uh, from around the church, including things like theology, evangelization, philosophy, and more. We're going to go in-depth into several of the chapters in the book. But before we do, Bishop, uh, maybe a little update. How about, uh, what are you reading these days? Give us a little taste. Well, you know, one thing during this uh, COVID period, I've had more time for reading. Sort of my monkish side has come out a bit more. Um, What I'm reading with great interest right now is uh, Robert Alter's magnificent Old Testament translation and commentary. And it's in connection with the Word on Fire Bible, other projects that I'm working on. But Alter uh, is a great uh, scholar of Hebrew and of ancient Jewish literature. And I used him a lot when I was working on my second Samuel book from several years ago. I used his commentary on the David literature. Well, this is the whole Old Testament, all of it. So the whole thing is about 3,500 pages. (laughs) And uh, I've plowed through the book of Genesis and now I'm just on to Exodus. And I'm going to read the whole Bible with his commentary. So um, I'm underway with that. (laughs) To me, it's, um, I mean, the Bible is always a great joy to read. And there is something mysterious. I'm sure you sense this too, Brandon. We, we read a lot, but there is something about reading the Bible where you sense the real presence of the Holy Spirit, you know. And Alter uh, is, is a, a Jewish uh, scholar, more of a secularized kind of background. He himself is not, you know, super religious. And in a way, that's okay because what I'm looking for in his commentary is more of the language, the philology, the history, the background. So anyway, that's been a uh, kind of a, a joyful project I've been on recently. And it's like, what is it? It's like three massive yeah. books that he's written, right? Three beautiful, big hardcovers. And um, the whole thing, I think, is about 3,500 pages. <laughs> well, about five years ago, you released an academic collection of essays. It was titled... Uh, Exploring Catholic Theology, Essays on God, Liturgy, and Evangelization. It was published by Baker Academic. Mm-hmm. You also just mentioned your commentary on 2 Samuel. And these books have a bit of a different tone and aim than a lot of the more popular level stuff that you write and your YouTube videos, the podcast. Uh, it worries me sometimes that a lot of our listeners aren't aware of that side of you. And I think it would be good for them to be exposed to higher level theology and philosophy and reflection. Um, I sometimes think, you know, if Bishop Barron wasn't on YouTube, if he wasn't writing these popular level books, you would probably be considered one of the premier Catholic intellectuals of our time. Um, I, I think you're one of the brightest minds reflecting on these questions. And so that was the impetus for this new collection of, of academic essays and scholarly talks. Again, it just released today. It's titled Renewing Our Hope, Essays for the New Evangelization. It was published by our good friends at Catholic University of America Press. So your alma mater there. Um, Shout out to John Martino, the talented editor there. And listeners can find out more about the book by visiting the website wordonfireshow.com slash renew. That's where you can get your copy of it, wordonfireshow.com slash renew. It has 17 chapters. Um, It's about 320 pages. And it covers a wide range of topics, everything from evangelization to theology to the sexual abuse crisis, the priesthood, relativism, liberalism, and even contemporary movies. So a very wide-ranging book. Um, Bishop, maybe 
for starters, let's talk about the impetus for this book. How did it come about? Why a book like this? Well, let me first say, Brandon, a thing, uh, something about what you mentioned at the outset, namely the kind of academic versus popular distinction. Uh, it's a truism to say, but if you do both serious academic writing and more popular writing, you are perforce better known for your popular writing because that goes out more widely. Also, I made a decision many years ago to do the work we're doing right now, namely evangelizing uh, and catechizing through the new media. Uh, I wanted to do both those things. Uh, I was trained as an academic theologian in languages and philosophy and theology and so on and so forth. And of the books I've written, I think more than half could be characterized as serious academic books. But again, perforce, they're, they're lesser known than the more popular books. Uh, I think it's, to my mind, very important to operate in, in both ways. Um, a lot of the great theologians over the centuries have done just that, by the way. You look at the highest level theologians, they also did, we call it more catechetical writing or more sermonizing. Think of Aquinas' um, sermons on the creed. Um, think of Augustine's more um, catechetical homilies. You read the homilies of Augustine, they're not like the De Trinitate or like the uh, uh, City of God. They're in a more popular vein. I mean, so I, I've always felt it's good to do both those things. It's one thing to sit in the sidelines and complain about you know, the decline in Catholic uh, catechetics since the council and the dumbing down, and which I've, I've done. I've complained about that, but also I've tried to do something about it. So that's why we've reached out in the more popular vein and through the social media. But all that time, I've continued doing um, uh, higher level academic work. Uh, this collection represents, as you say, about the last five, six years of my occasional writings, by which I mean I'm invited to give a, a lecture. I'm invited to give um, a presentation. I'm invited here or there and asked to talk about a particular aspect of the church's life. And what I've tried to do since I've been named a bishop, and even going back when I was a rector of the seminary, and I'm in full-time administrative work, I, I wanted to keep my hand in the game. So I always accepted on purpose every year, you know, two or three invitations to do higher level uh, research and writing. So this book represents about the last five, six years of that kind of writing over a range of topics. And my hope, Brandon, is that anybody interested in the life of the church today, and you know, theology, liturgy, philosophy, the culture, etc., would find something interesting in this book. Uh, as I say, it's, it's occasional writings, meaning I think you can move around this book, you read this chapter, that chapter, you need not maybe plow through it cover to cover, but you could benefit from an essay that interests you here and so on. Uh, but I, I've always tried to be both and when it comes to the higher level academic and the more um, you know, popular work. I think they're both good, they're both important. Readers will notice that on the cover of the book, it features a foreword by Archbishop Christophe mm. Pierre. Uh, who, who is he and why is this significant? Archbishop Pierre is the Apostolic Nuncio to the United States, so he's the Pope's representative. And I was, I was just delighted when he agreed to write that preface. I think. Uh, Catholic you approached him and asked him and so he's someone who very much represents the Pope to the whole country but has a special relationship to uh, the bishops and uh, I think that's reflected in his preface that he's talking about a bishop you know engaging in theological reflection at this level and the importance of that so I was delighted and, and very honored that he agreed to write that preface. 
Well, let's walk through some of the specific chapters. Again, we're not going to go through all 17 of them, but I thought we could kind of float through and take a tour. Um, there's four major sections of the book by which the chapters are arranged. So the first one is renewing our mission. Part two is renewing our minds. Part three is renewing the church. And part four is renewing our culture. Hmm. So let's start with this uh, first part, renewing our mission. The first two essays in the book are... Uh, uh, all about the nuns. The first one is looking yeah. for the nuns, which was a talk you gave at the University of Notre Dame, and then evangelizing the nuns, which was your 2017 Erasmus lecture for First Things. And in both essays, you explore some of the intellectual roadblocks preventing the unaffiliated from believing in religion. Why are these intellectual roadblocks important? You know, a lot of people say we need to just really get better at loving the unaffiliated, welcoming them, inviting them, getting them involved in community. You know, those intellectual things are not really what they're struggling with. Why is it important that we focus on those? I mean, I should say first, you know, you and I have clarified this a lot, but when we say the nuns, we don't mean the N-U-N-S. I'm not trying to get, it's the N-O-N-E-S, right? Those who are unaffiliated from the faith. Um, I've said this before, Brandon, that those who claim uh, that young people who have disaffiliated don't have a lot of intellectual questions have not accompanied many young people. I've been doing it for the past 20 years or more. Uh, accompanying, yes. Reaching out in friendship, yes. Inviting into a shared life, yes. I'm in complete support of all those moves. But as I say, you spend even a very short time with a young, unaffiliated person, they got tons of questions. I don't care what you want to call them. I just call them honest questions. What should we do in response? Oh, just say, let's have another pizza. No, how about providing smart answers to honest questions? Some people don't like the word apologetics. I mean, I don't care. Use another word if you want. I'd call it giving smart answers to honest intellectual questions. Young people have lots and lots and lots of those questions. And the church has got to be, in my judgment, a lot better at providing uh, compelling answers. So, uh, I mean, to me, look at any of the surveys of those who've disaffiliated. And you and I have talked about this. What's the number one reason in survey after survey? I've stopped believing in the claims of the church. So everyone wants it, I guess, to be, oh, I'm angry at priests or it's the sex abuse scandal. And those indeed are, are ingredient in the problem. But number one, time and again, intellectual disagreement. And so, yeah, I think it's exceptionally important to address those questions and address them seriously. That's what I do in both of those essays. So again, that's part one, renewing our mission. It's all about evangelization, especially of those who have no religious belief. And I think a lot of that will uh, be familiar with listeners of this podcast. Yeah. So let's hop forward to part two. I want to spend a little more time on this. This one is titled Renewing Our Minds. And there are several fascinating essays in this chap in this part. One of them is on Derrida, Aquinas, and the Dilemma of Divine Generosity. That was a lecture you gave when you received your honorary doctorate from the Angelicum. There's another one on John Henry Newman and the New Evangelization. There's an essay on the intellectual influences on Pope Francis, which is kind of some groundbreaking work that I don't think many others have explored. But I want to talk about uh, one essay in particular. It's titled, How Von Balthasar Changed My Mind. Mm. Um, I, what stuck out to me is it's rare for serious theologians to flat out admit, I used to believe something, and then I read this, and now I believe something else. Like a lot of the thinkers I read are pretty intransigent in their own beliefs, and they won't 
kind of admit this development of thought. Um, but again, you have a whole essay here that reading von Balthasar changed your mind in a significant way. How so? What did he change? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a somewhat complicated issue, but to state it simply, the move from a, a, a dominant liberal model of doing theology to a different way of doing it. And now I'm, I'm using that word in a very particular way. I know it's a very slippery term, liberal. What I mean here is the view that you begin theology primarily with experience. So you begin with a, a personal generic experience of the sacred or of the divine. Think of now from Friedrich Schleiermacher, religion begins with the feeling of absolute dependency. Move up through uh, Paul Tillich, the, the feeling of being ultimately concerned. Come up to Karl Rahner, who is massively influential for my generation of Catholic uh, seminarians, priests, and theologians. Rahner says we begin with the experience of being in the presence of absolute mystery. Now, without going into all the details, are those experiences valid? Yeah, they are, I think. They're legitimate. We really have those experiences, and they do orient us toward the sacred. What's the danger? The danger is that very often the specificity of biblical religion is occluded, or is at least marginalized. The stress is so on generic experience, which does indeed link us, let's say, to all spiritually minded people around the world, and that's not a bad thing. So I'm not, I'm not bad-mouthing liberalism. In fact, I've been careful to say I'm not anti-liberal, I'm post-liberal. By which I mean I'm happy to take in the value of this liberal approach, but what Balthazar helped me to see and this is, the, for me, the demarcation from a very Ranarian formation that I had as a young man to Balthazarian. For Balthazar, I think he too would say yes to what Rahner saw. But he would tend to say, theology gets really interesting precisely where Rahner stops. It gets really interesting when we move from our generic experience of the sacred to the specificity of what God has disclosed to us in Revelation. So for Balthazar, it's not primarily my experience of the sacred. It's the form of revelation that's been given to me precisely in the history of Israel, which culminates in the one who is the glory of his people, Israel. In the Christ, the gestalt, the form, he says, that discloses the divine mind and heart. In the beauty and specificity of Christ, theology opens up and becomes something really splendid and moves us to missionary uh, action. It's all of that, that let's say in the oh, late 80s, early 90s, when I was doing my doctoral work and then my early years as a teacher, began to change my mind. And in many ways, you know, Brandon, Word on Fire uh, came up out of that uh, conversion. So read the essay for all the details, but that's the basic way that Balthazar, you know, even to say change my mind, that's the, the title of the, of the book that I contributed to, but something like I'd say a development, you know, is a more accurate way to put it. Without leaving behind the, the liberal approach, it's something really new and fresh developing beyond it. We're talking about Bishop Barron's new book titled Renewing Our Hope, Essays for the New Evangelization, just released today by Catholic University of America Press. We're talking through some of the chapters here and we're covering part two. We just looked at one of the essays in part two. 
Um, this section is all about renewing our minds. Let's look at another essay in this chapter. It's one titled, Why the Divine Simplicity Matters. Mm. And this was occasioned by your exchange with uh, Dr. William Lane Craig, the famous Protestant ev uh, evangelist and philosopher. We don't need to go into all the details of the essay or even the doctrine of divine simplicity, but why is it that this doctrine is so crucial to you and not just secondary? Because I know William Lane Craig was arguing just the opposite. This right. is kind of a secondary thing. Believe it if you want. Don't if you don't want to. Why is it so crucial? And first of all, you know, it's, it's a joy, Brandon, to hear you uh, rehearse for me the occasions for these various writings. Because it brings back lovely memories of, like, for example, being at the Angelicum, being in Oxford with the Newman talk. And this one, the dialogue with William Lane Craig, which I enjoyed immensely. Someone I have great um, uh, respect for, Craig, who took on the new atheists at a time when most Christians weren't willing or able to do it. And I very much admire the way he did that. So it was a pleasure. It was my first chance to meet him and spend a wonderful day with him. And uh, we had a, a higher level academic exchange. And the topic that, that I proposed was this one of the divine simplicity, because I know he takes a different view. Um, in a nutshell, to say that God is simple is to say in God, essence and existence coincide. To be God is not to be this or that. It's not to be this kind of being versus that kind of being. Everything else in our experience, from the highest to the simplest uh, type of existence, is a hybrid of essence and existence. These are things that exist, but according to a mode. They exist according to a specific uh, form. But God is not like that. When Moses asked in Exodus 3.14, you know, when they, when they asked me, uh, what's your name, what shall I tell them? And the answer comes back, you know, I am who I am. Moses is asking a very commonsensical question. It's a good philosophical question. Well, well what kind of being are you? you know, so if I'm asking your name and you give it to me, you're, you're specifying which human being you are. Right? Or if I were to say, now what dif differenti differentiates you from other animals, you would, you would uh, uh, tell me, you would qualify your being. Well, who are you, God? I am who I am. Now, I think everything flows in a way from that. Once we understand this unique manner of God's being, we see all kinds of implications. And here's just one I'll point out now. We see God's non-competitiveness. Uh, if God is one being among many, even the highest, so there's you and me and there's all kinds of other beings, and there's God as the highest being of them all, well then all of us are against the same metaphysical background, if you want. We're all in the same genus of being, and we're necessarily jockeying for position within that framework. But if you say God is not en sumum, that's Thomas for uh, highest being, but rather ipsum esse, that means to be itself. Then we see, as Aquinas puts it, God is not in a genus, even the genus of being. But see what that does is that it precludes God becoming a competitive being over and against us. And from that, I hope people can see, there's an enormous range of implications. God is not uh, putting us down that he might be glorified. And that's where I would, in many dialogues I've had, um, engage Protestants. Because I think very often, coming up out of Luther and Calvin, you do have a somewhat competitive view of the God-human relationship. So that if God gets all the glory, as indeed he should, well then I shouldn't get glory. But 
I'm operating out of the St. Irenaeus perspective. Gloria Dei, the glory of God, is what? Homo vivens, is a human being fully alive. Well, that makes perfect sense on the, on the assumption that God is simple, that God is not competing with us in a zero-sum game. That, if you want, is why I think that doctrine of the divine simplicity is so important. Again, I think readers will especially enjoy that chapter. Not only do you lay out this defense of divine simplicity, but you also respond or anticipate some of the major objections against mm -hmm. it that Craig and others have put forward. So highly recommend that one. That's part two, renewing our minds. Let's go now to part three, renewing our church. And this is where you tackle a lot of more ad intra questions about ecclesiology. You have a section on the sexual abuse crisis, another one on Amago Dei, the image of God. And then one on the virtue of magnanimity, which I thought was a, a great mm. piece. But the one I want to talk about here is an essay you have on the renewal of the priesthood. And you focus specifically on the Vatican II document mm -hmm. on the priesthood, Atatum Totius. And this document, you know, it's been, what, 50 plus years yeah. since Vatican II proposed it. Um, how has it been received? What more needs to be done to implement its vision? It's a question not a lot of people discuss. What did Vatican II have to say about the priesthood and how it's to be revived and reformed? Yeah, and again, I, I'm grateful to be reminded of the occasion. That was um, a collection that my friend uh, and your friend too, Dr. Matthew Levering, put together. It was a series of essays on the Vatican II documents and their reception. So at the time, uh, Matt was working uh, with me at Mundelein Seminary. I was the rector at Mundelein. And he thought, well, here's a good candidate then to write on Optatum Totsius, which, as you say, is about seminary formation. So I was bringing to bear not just my theological background, but my practical experience as a rector of the largest seminary in the country at the time. Um, I, I put a special stress there on the reception of the document. The document is, is short. Uh, it's very good. It's very meaty. It passed. I was just rereading it last night. The vote was like, you know, 2,305 to 3, I think, you know, so it was overwhelmingly adopted by the Council Fathers. Uh, it reflects in many ways, Brandon, the Nouvelle Theologie, you know, those theologians like de Lubac and others who were influencing the Council. It puts a great stress on the Bible, on the Bible in the formation of seminarians. puts a great stress on the Church Fathers. It does say in a little famous ablative absolute, magistro toma, meaning with Thomas as master, as teacher. So it wants Aquinas to be a sort of touchstone. But it's interesting because it was departing from the approach that was common prior to the council that Thomas was sort of the be-all and end-all of seminary formation. It was simply, you know, the mind of Thomas on everything. Optatpantosia uh, says, no, with Thomas as sort of the Renian spirit, but we want to read a whole range of theologians and especially back to the Bible. There's much more I could say about the document itself, but what I find really intriguing is the history of reception because there was a lot of work done in the years after the Council in seminary reform. And um, the great document of John Paul II, Pastoris Dabo Vobis, right from the early 90s, uh, became the Magna Carta for seminary people. And he lays out there the famous four pillars of formation. So every formation program in the country is, is predicated upon those four pillars. Uh, but you also see it's, it's being received in John Paul II's um, audience uh, talks. It's also received in the famous program for priestly formation. Insiders call it the PPF. And the PPF, it's now version 6 is being considered by the Vatican as we speak, but it was version 5 when I was rector. And I used to 
teach from it and preach from it and use it for formation all the time. The PPF is trying to incarnate Pastoris Davo Vobis, which in turn incarnates Optatam Totsius. So it, it, it started a very long and very rich tradition of seminary reform uh, in our country and around the world. So yeah, read that, uh, that little piece for some of those details. Would you say that, that that document has been fully received, that it's been fully applied? Does more still need to be done? Do we need to return to that document today when it comes to the priesthood? Sure. No, and, and that's a good question, Brandon, because I would say with all the Vatican II documents, uh, have they been fully received? I'd say no. I, I think the process of real reception of the Council is still just beginning. I've said to you many times in these podcasts, there are a lot of elements of Vatican II that have not yet really been received. One of them being the biblical revival. I think we're trying, and I can point to a lot of things, but I don't think among uh, the Catholic population generally, there's been the awakening in biblical uh, knowledge that the Council wanted. Another one, by the way, the reform of moral theology, which Vatican II called for. Uh, yes, there have been great uh, attempts over these decades. Has that really happened? I don't know, I don't know. So, short answer is yes. We need to go back again and again to these great documents and, uh, and then receive them according to our time, meaning in response to the concerns and questions of our time. All right, let's move on to the fourth and final part of your new book, Renewing Our Hope. The fourth part is titled Renewing Our Culture, and here's where you focus on the more odd extra questions. Um, you have an essay on Pope Francis's exhortation, Amoris Laetitia, another one on the topic of relativism. You have um, the, the uh, talk that you gave to the U.S. Congress on liberalism and Catholicism and the disconnect between those. Uh, but I want to focus on the very last essay in the book. Uh, it was previously published in the Oxford Handbook of Christology. So this big, I don't know, 800, 900 page academic collection from all sorts of contributors. Your essay for the book was titled Christ in Cinema, oh, The Evangelical Power of the Beautiful. And you do a really thorough analysis of three films in particular. One of them is Babette's Feast. Mm. The second one is The Shawshank Redemption. The third one is Gran Torino. We've talked a little bit about some yeah. of these films, especially <laughs> Gran Torino before, yeah. but uh, what's the value here of looking for Christ in cinema? You know, it's funny you mentioned Bobette's Feast because the actress who played Bobette just died, I want to say a few months ago. And when I read that news, of course, it brought that film so vividly back to my mind. One of the great religious and Christological films of the last 50 years. Um, I think, Brandon, it, it's a place where people are formed in today's culture. Um, I think of music, I think of cinema, maybe above all, as places in the popular culture where people take in now, of course, the social media too, where they take in their intellectual, moral, uh, cultural formation. And so to look in the films for, I'll use Sokolowski's image again, of you know the, the pieces of the Christian thing, often twisted and smoking, that have fallen after the great explosion. But you can find them very often in cinema. And from the beginning of my work on YouTube, you know, the very first YouTube video I did was a commentary on Scorsese's The Departed. Uh, I've turned to film. In this uh, chapter, I do it a little more technically and carefully looking at these three, but Babette's Feast, one of the great Christ figure images in, in recent cinema. All three are Christ figure images. Shawshank, which of course everybody knows, but Andy Dufresne, who once you start seeing the rhythm of that film, it's so obvious. 
uh, and then of course Gran Torino, as I've said, the best, to my mind, best exemplification of the Christus Victor theory of how Jesus' cross saves us is in that film. So all three are these deeply Christ-haunted movies. So again, I encourage viewers and listeners to pick up your copy of the book, 17 Essays, over 320 pages, a delightful, rangy collection of scholarly talks and reflections. Again, it's titled Renewing Our Hope. You can find it at wordonfireshow.com renew, and I highly encourage you to get a copy today. Well, it's time now for our question from one of our listeners. Today we have a really interesting one from a convert from Hinduism, and she's asking about how um, to share and, and um, present Jesus as a singular incarnation uh, contra the Hinduist view, which says that you know maybe God has incarnated himself in multiple ways. So here's the question. Hello, my name is Radhika from Raleigh, North Carolina, and I'm a convert from Hinduism. My question is, how do I dialogue with those who believe that Jesus is only one of many incarnations of God? For example, most Hindus believe in many incarnations of God, including Krishna and others. Hindus also believe that all religions lead to the same truth. How can I share with them the unique lordship of Christ? Thank you for all you do, and God bless. That's a great question, searching question. Uh, I might recommend, especially to the, to the questioner, look at the work of Raimundo Panikar. You know that name? Uh, you can tell from his, his sort of double name there, a Catholic and a, and a Hindu, Raimundo Panikar, because his parentage was mixed. It was Catholic and Hindu. And uh, he becomes a Jesuit priest and a theologian and did some really wonderful work, I thought, on, on thinking through the whole world religions issue. But one of his insights is that Hinduism, in many ways, is the great religion, if you want, of the Holy Spirit. He took the Trinitarian persons and, and applied them to the various religions. Buddhism, with his great stress on the kind of the void and the unknowability and the darkness and so on, was almost like a religion of the Father, because the Father is this sort of unoriginate, you know, chthonic person. He thought the, like Judaism and Islam with the stress on the word are more like religions of the sun. And he saw Hinduism as a religion of the spirit, by which he meant what you're describing there, I think rightly, as these various incarnations would be a bit like what we would hold about the way the spirit is alive in a variety of people. And some more intensely than others, we call them saints, people in whom the spirit is, is especially present. I think there's a qualitative difference between the claims being made about the divine presence in you know, the, the 10,000 places, I think, as Hinduism puts it, and the claim being made uh, about Jesus. Because there's a uniqueness and a totality about the claim that Jesus makes regarding himself, which has then been ratified by his resurrection from the dead. I think there's a qualitative difference between that, I and the Father are one, you know, he who sees me sees the Father. Um, in the beginning was the Word, and, and the Word became flesh, etc. A difference between that and what I'd call more of the manifestations of the Holy Spirit, which, which might obtain in a whole variety of, of people and places. Now, none of that is to gainsay that we can find a, a point of contact. We can find a real bridge to Hinduism precisely at that point, and I would recommend doing precisely that. 
Well, it's a great question, and I wanted to thank everyone for listening to this episode all about Bishop Barron's new book, Renewing Our Hope. Again, you can pick up your copy by visiting wordonfireshow.com renew. A special shout out to a couple of our Word on Fire Show patron supporters, Carrie Campbell, Lucy Kaysen, all those who support the work of Word on Fire financially and through your prayers. We're so grateful to you. We're so grateful. We couldn't be doing any of this without your support. So thank you. If you'd like to join them, visit wordonfireshow.com patron and become a supporter of this podcast show. Well, thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time on the Word on Fire Show. Oh,